lot of times when you become a leader, especially a Christian leader, you can become a professional mm. Christian leader. Yeah. And that's deadly to our soul. Mm. And it begins with maintaining a sense of awe in the presence of God. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to Framework Leadership, a podcast about principles and ideas you can use today to take your leadership to the next level. I'm your host, Kent Engel, president of Southeastern University. And I'm your co-host, Michael Steiner, vice president for innovation. And man, we're excited today to talk with Greg Surratt. Greg is author, leader, founding pastor of Seacoast Church. He's also the president, co-founder of the Association of Related Churches, which uh, is a global church planning initiative that has established, what, over 800 churches worldwide? About 1,100 About now. 1,100 yeah. now. Wow. Yeah. And great to have you with us. Thanks for taking time. Great. Great to be here. Love what you guys are doing. Appreciate that. Now, you've, you, as we get this conversation going, you've impacted and made a, I mean, a profound impact on the global uh, Christian community over the years, especially through, uh, you know, your leadership and your ministry at Seacoast and and all that you developed there. Tell us how all that spi- uh, started and what inspired you to, to really launch Seacoast and share. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I didn't have a real strong start in ministry. I got fired my first three jobs oh, no. as a youth pastor and uh, figured out that wasn't probably God's best for me. <laughs> but at, at the last one, uh, my wife, uh, we, we're from Denver, Colorado, and she uh, bought a book in a bookstore uh, that was in the bargain bin, you know? Yeah. I mean, the full retail price was $2.50 on it. <laughs> she got it for $0.25, cents and it, it was called All Originality makes a dull church. And the premise of it was that you didn't have to reinvent the wheel, that God was doing a lot of things in a lot of places, look around. And it was a story of several, you know, churches during that particular time period. That must've been the seventies maybe. And I'd never been outside of our, you know, local denominational church. And, uh, something about that inspired me Mm. to say, you know what? I, I want to, I want to do this differently. And I had a real, um, I had a desire to reach people who didn't normally go to church. And I know that's mm. typical today, yeah. but mm. back then it wasn't. Right, right. And uh, there was a 10 year gap from when I read the book until we started Seacoast Church. But um, a lot of that was a stimulus. I felt it wouldn't go away. God really, in my heart, uh, was, uh, and I wanted to reach people who were friends of mine, who were like me, who maybe just weren't going to church. Yeah. And uh, so that was the stimulus of doing it. Do you remember what are one or two of the insights that you had when you read that book that kept with you all those years and all that kind of stuff that kind of spurred you in there? Well, there were, there, there were a lot of things. I mean, uh, it was the story of uh, Robert Schuller and what became Crystal Cathedral, but it was uh, another name at that mm-hmm. point. Chuck Smith, I think, yeah, Calvary yep, right. Chapel, yep. Gene Getz Bible Church. Mm-hmm. They're just what I would do is I'd I'd read this and I'd save up my money and I'd buy whatever book these guys yes. bought. <laughs> and from Schuler, it was uh, the the idea of possibility that nothing was impossible. In fact, mm-hmm. even today, um, I, I love to sit down. I did it this week on a particular issue and said, if nothing was impossible, and money wasn't an issue, and God's will was being done perfectly on earth in this situation, as it's being done in heaven, what would we try? What would we attempt? Wow. What would we go for? And that's been a, a, a mm. continuous learning 
over the years. Didn't agree with everything everybody said or all the theology. You know, who cares? I mean, we're going to get to heaven someday and, uh, you know, God's going to say, well, they were right about this, but not this. And all. Yeah. You know, I don't mm-hmm. care. Right. Mm-hmm. Learn from everybody. Yeah. And um, just, uh, you know, practical teaching relationship stuff yeah. that you could, uh, you know, that you could uh, really build strong relationships mm-hmm. in ministry and uh, felt kind of isolated and yeah. just a lot of stuff. That's a powerful question, though. I mean, think about what would you do? And I was reading, um, there's a book I was reading this week, uh, Vivid Vision by Cameron Harold, and he was talking about how too many people, they make their vision statements or their next, but when you really look at it, all it is is just more of what they have right now. Mm-hmm. And too many people don't take that leap into thinking, okay, what's that dangerous question? From your experience in working with ARC and different pastors, what has that question done? What happens when people start really taking that question seriously? Oh, it just, it takes the lid off things. Mm. It's, um, you know, because normally when we dream vision, you know, the things that leaders do, uh, we do it within the context and framework of what we have. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's good. I mean, we've got to be real about that stuff. But I love to begin at a place of... You know, what if nothing was impossible? Yeah. Uh, I think the Bible talks about that yeah, a little bit. Right. And then Jesus teaches us to pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, my piece of earth is, you know, whatever it is that I'm involved in. And I remember uh, Seacoast, we started in 1988. Um, the first five years, uh, we had less people every year than we had the year before. And that was one of the metrics of... What does it mean to, mm-hmm. you know, um, to, to build a church or whatever? And that metric was not up and to the right. It was down and to the left and <laughs> no. constantly. And, and in uh, five years after we started, 1993, I went to the beach. And I hate the beach. Uh, I live on a beach. Yes. It's awesome. But I live on a beach, uh, you know, uh, theoretically, I don't live on the beach. But I right. live in a town that's by the beach. And... I, I, lo- I would love beaches if they didn't have sand. I don't right, like yeah, sand. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yep. But, but there's something awe-inspiring about looking at this vast expanse right. and realizing how small you are mm. and how big God is. And uh, I, I, that's the first time I did that. I, I sat there, I took my Bible and notebook, and I asked God, I said, if your will was being done, in Mount Pleasant, which is where we lived, and it was being done like it is on earth or in heaven, what would that look like? And it just, it expanded my mind wow. to, um, to to believe God for big things. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you are... Uh, like the father of multi-site uh, and, and building and developing that. And then, of course, you uh, were co-founder of launching ARC. But kind of give us the vision behind multi-site yeah. and how that came about. Yeah, I'd like to call it a vision. It's a nightmare. Right. <laughs> um, we were we had started to grow. We, we were just a – I've always been a part of very small churches. I grew up in a small Assembly of God church pastored a smaller Assembly of God church. And so I love small churches. I love small pastors. In fact, in the whole multi... During, I'll skip ahead during the multi-site thing. Uh, a uh, national reporter of one of the big newspapers uh, was writing a piece on mega church multi-site and all that. And he asked if he could talk to me. I said, sure. And I didn't realize it was not a friendly piece. Uh-huh. And uh, so he was going down a road about all that. I said, time out. I said, uh, you know, I... 
I'm a small church guy. I love small churches. I said, this one just got away from us. It's not my fault. Right. I wasn't yeah, trying. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, so, yeah. and, and so the church began to grow and, uh, you know, we did multiple services and then mm-hmm. three services and then four services and five services. And at that point I hated my life mm-hmm. and, uh, you're not created to do that. Yeah. And, um, so we're going to build a bigger building. Uh, we're in, you know, the South. Uh, Bible Belt, but Charleston isn't. It's kind of unique because it's a it's a cosmopolitan city, and so it's kind of a donut in the mm-hmm. in the Bible Belt. But I didn't see that coming. And um, uh, our town council uh, said not in our backyard, mm. and uh, uh, chose to make a stand politically uh, in a bigger issue that they were doing in our city uh, on us, and it was devastating. I mean, I um, it took me by surprise. Uh, we had purchased, you know, a lot of land right around us and rezoned it where we couldn't use it for anything. And I remember going to my office after the decision came down and I did what I do when I'm discouraged. And by the way, if you're going to be a leader, uh, especially a pastor, the occupational hazard, uh, one of them is discouragement. You're going to get discouraged. You just got to figure out what to do with it. I got discouraged. I went to my office and I closed the windows down, turned the lights off and turned on some country music because <laughs> they always lose something. Girlfriend, a dog, a dog. And so I'm in that moment. And honestly, in that moment, um, there was a theological truth that was in my head that dropped into my heart. And it was, it, it, this is it, is that um, God is omniscient. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's real hard to surprise an omniscient God. He's never had a moment where he went, oh, my bad, I didn't see that coming. And if that's the truth, then God isn't surprised by our circumstances, and he is at work on a solution Mm -hmm. before we even knew there was a problem. And so um, we began to work on a solution. And so I I like to say that uh, creativity or innovation is just desperation in a prettier package. Mm -hmm. And we we get desperate and we have to do something. And so we began to think about what we could do and talk to a few churches and a group called Leadership Network convened, um, you know, half a dozen to a dozen churches. A lot of them you know now, you didn't know then. Life Church, Mm -hmm. uh, Oklahoma City, um, us, uh, Community Christian in Chicago, um, they, there were several of them. And um, we began to try to figure out, okay, here are the rules. The rules are you can do ministry at this address on this particular piece of land. Now, the city has told us we can't do any more ministry there. Does that mean that's the end of it? Mm-hmm. And so we began to think outside the box. What What is possible? If nothing were impossible, what would we do? And and so um, we began to meet together with these other churches about once every six months for a week and strategize and think about it and experiment. It's all big experiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, re- I remember one time uh, early on we were, I won't give all the details on it, but the, the, uh, we were, we had planted a church that that wasn't doing well. Pastor wanted to quit. And we had done one multi-site um, not very far from where we were. And this was a, this was a 90 minute drive from our church and we're in a vehicle going up. And I remember, um, Byron Davis who had retired recently as a Fisher price toys CEO. And 
he was helping me with think about these mm-hmm. things and it's in our church and and uh, we're going to a meeting that turned out to be a brutal. Just it was it, was, it wasn't <laughs> a good meeting. We we're gonna tell the congregation why we were going to try to do this thing that nobody heard of before multi-site there. And he told me he said, uh, "Don't get discouraged." He said, uh, "If it doesn't work here, doesn't mean it won't work somewhere else. Right, right. But if it does work here, it can work anywhere." anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that became prophetic. Can, can you take wow. us to the conversation where when multi-site first was brought up? I mean, obviously, this is a long journey. You're yeah. going through all these different process. But what was that moment like where they're like, hey, here's this crazy idea. Like, what what did that look like? What did the conversation look like? What was your impression? Yeah. Who did it come from? Well, what, what we did was when we got the no, we were like, we got to do something. And uh, I remembered I had gone to a conference somewhere where Larry Osborne, who... Mm. Yeah. Um, it was in San Diego mm-hmm. right. and he was doing a breakout, you know, you do breakouts yeah. yep. mm-hmm. and he was doing a breakout on video venue. I think he called it. There were six people in the room. Nobody was interested in mm-hmm. it at all. And I popped into the room, listened to it a little bit and thought, hmm, that's interesting. Really didn't stick. And then I had heard that Willow Creek was experimenting with a with an offsite, they called it, um, uh, in, in Wheaton, I think it was. And, mm. and I had heard that there was a church in Rockford, Illinois, that was watching old Willow Creek videos, uh, and they didn't really have a teaching pastor. I think it was called Heartland. And so we're desperate. <laughs> yeah. And so Byron Davis, the guy I talked about earlier, he and I got in, a, mm. just, just got on an airplane and uh, we went on a Saturday night to um, San Diego, and we saw what Larry Osborne was was doing, you know, there. And we thought, hmm, that's interesting. And uh, we took the overnight, the red mm-hmm. eye, to Chicago, uh, took a, a car out to Rockford, changed clothes in their bathroom, and uh, watched what they did. And they were... It was an old John Ortberg tape from three years ago on a Wednesday night in Willow Creek. And yet I always ask myself when I go to a church, would I go here? And they had small groups. They had just worship. It was an, I thought I probably would go to church here. And then we went into Willow Creek and they weren't doing a good job of Mm. their first offsite. It just, it wasn't, they they fixed it. They got it Mm. right, but it wasn't right Mm. at the time. And and we went to a Dave and Buster's, I think, to eat in uh, And Byron and I sat down, and uh, he said, what do you think? And I said, I think there's something to this. I mm. think we could figure this out. And uh, and so we went home, and I told my, my, I told my brother, Jeff, who um, uh, he was on staff at the time, and I, I, I explained the idea. I said, here's what I think we could do is we could rent a, a building, and we'll have live worship, and we'll, do, we'll pipe the message in is what we'll do. And, and he said, are you kidding me? He said, that's about the dumbest idea I have ever heard. He said, and it was. It was. Yeah. Well, uh, but I, I'll just say this on that. He went ahead and ultimately wrote the book, The Multi-Site Revolution, which became the Bible of all the multi-site right. stuff. And he gets all the credit, you know. Yeah. And he thought it was funny. terrible. He, but here's what I never heard. Right. People always go, they hear, how did you how did you talk people into, especially how did you get everybody on board? In the right. church. And I said, well, that never happened. happened. Right. And what I never heard early on was, that's a really good idea. Wow. Never heard that. Wow. Never heard that. The whole way through. 
Oh yeah, well yeah. early on, no. Right. I mean it's so because it was it was a new idea. It wasn't mm-hmm. a everybody wasn't doing it and right. it didn't sound like something that would work. Right, so. right. It was also I would just love this idea that just because it's a good idea doesn't mean that other people are going to validate it. Mm-hmm. And I think too many leaders get caught up in that with their ideas. They've got right, visions, right. they got yeah. dreams, but they look for that validation when there's only really one validation that you need, which is the Holy Spirit talking inside your... Well, um, I read, years later, I read a um, uh, blog by Mark Cuban, mm-hmm. and I think it was uh, titled, Never Listen to the Customer. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And what he did, he was just talking about when you're going to, when you're creating something new, mm-hmm. yeah. he said, leaders create the future. Right. And if you pull the audience on something new, yeah, they're usually they're not on board. No. It, you know, he talks about the fact that if Henry Ford yep. would have pulled the audience, they would have want faster horses. Yep. Uh, Steve Jobs, I've got an iPad right mm-hmm. here. And I, actually, I... I preached the day the first iPad came out on an iPad. That's how weird and, t- and techy I am. But nobody thought this was a good idea. Why do you need a big phone? Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and yet, and yet, uh, oftentimes leaders uh, have to kind of create the future and yeah. see the future. Yeah. I'm going to derail the conversation here. I'm so sorry. But if we're talking about the future, and we're talking about tech. You were one of the first to preach off an iPad. In your in a few minutes, AI. What's it going to do to the church? AI is great. Yeah. Um, I hope it doesn't destroy the world. Right. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, right. as long as it doesn't become Skynet, yeah. right? Like, put that aside. I, what use, it was, it, yeah. I use it all the time. Really? Yeah. I, I think if you if you use AI to create your sermon, you know, and you're going to preach it, so it's just awful. Right. right. It was right. terrible. But um, uh, if you if you have an idea and what would be a way to you can ask all kinds right. of right. questions. Yeah. Right. All kinds of research, right. and, and so um, I, yeah. I love it. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to utilize in leadership. I love your book, Your Reverend, and you talk a lot about, you know, kind of challenging the traditional ways of doing church. What are a couple of examples that you've found that were pretty impactful when it comes to thinking differently, besides just the multi-site and all of that, but, I mean, just other ways that you look at how we do church? Yeah, um, you know, one of the... And there, there are just a lot. In fact, you are, um, you know, you had this great university and have this leadership uh, impact. And I like to tell young folks and uh, that I hope some of you challenge what we're doing. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about deconstruction. Right, right. I'm not afraid of it, just as long as you reconstruct. You know, I mean, right. we've all deconstructed some things. Right. But I hope that next generation, I believe that. It, it is time mm. right now for somebody, several somebodies, to challenge how we do church. I really, I, I really believe it is. And um, that's kind of probably some of what we've tried to do. Sometimes it's just desperation and you go, mm-hmm. let's try this. Um, one of the things, uh, style of worship, um, we, several years ago, I, I felt very dry, um, like, uh, but we could do this in our sleep kind of a thing. You know, you have certain, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, liturgy that we do. And some churches do liturgy for thousands of years, which is good, Mm -hmm. but ours is kind of, you go into one mega church or another mega church and they look just alike. And, 
And uh, I was dry inside, and uh, I, I asked the Lord, I said, uh, how can we experience more of your presence and your power? Mm. And I went on a journey of, um, I didn't know it was a journey, but it was the next six months of, uh, I, I, uh, I did a thing for John Maxwell in Scotland, and I, um, I, I substitute for somebody who couldn't be there. And while I was there, somebody said, do you want to take an adventure? And I said, yeah, if it doesn't involve skirts and painting your face, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we went to the Isle of Iona, which oh, is um, where Christianity right. came yeah. from Ireland to Scotland and then to the wow. rest of Europe. And there's this monastery there. And it was a horrible day. So nobody was around. And in that monastery, I saw, you know, a, a little wooden cross that people put prayer requests or something on, and I experienced the presence of God. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I went and visited a friend of mine who had a uh, large charismatic church uh, in Louisiana, and they would call people forward and anoint them with oil and pray, and I experienced the presence and power of God. I went to a friend of mine's Anglican church um, and went and took communion, and I'm not going to argue for transubstantiation or consubstantiation or any of that. All I know is I experienced the presence and power of God in that. Um, I went to an, on another Maxwell trip, I was going to India and I'd never been to Paris. And I thought you got to make one stop on the way I'm going to Paris. So I stopped in Paris and I went to the uh, Notre Dame cathedral, Mm -hmm. which, you know, a lot of people would say the presence of God has departed a long time ago. And, um, there were there was a place where they were they were lighting candles, and so I went over there. I'd never been been around that, and I sensed the presence and power of God. I don't know if those candles are what burned down the cathedral a few years <laughs> right. later or what, right. but um, in in all of that, and I was reading Isaiah where uh, it says that you're uh, in your in your heads or in your your lips mm. worship me, but your hearts are far from me and. And so um, I announced a few weeks later at Seacoast, everything's going to change. And we never announce change because 65% of the people are predisposed not to want to change. Right. Mm-hmm. So we just tweak stuff and never, we just do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. But I said, we're going to change. So we had a huge crowd, you know, kind of NASCAR car wreck, maybe what's going to go on here. And I told them, we're going to change the way that we worship. And we have, and we have for like 15 years or 20 years where we have two two songs on the front end. Uh, a greeting by a pastor, preaching within 12 minutes of the beginning of the service, which, by the way, if people come in late to your church, if you'll put the preaching up front, they won't come in late. Right, right. And then we have worship as a response to, mm. to the preaching. And in the worship, there's anointing oil and prayer. There's uh, candles for intercessory prayer. There's um, uh, pinning confessions of sin on a cross. There's uh, communion every week. There's giving of offerings, you know, and um, it has totally revitalized how we do church and kept it fresh for 15 or 20 years. Wow. But it's not something you see everywhere. See everywhere yeah. Right. And uh, so that's a long yeah. answer to no, a very short and, yeah. and so what what advice would you get? I feel like there's probably a lot of listeners right now, pastors, different leaders that are in a similar spot which you which you outlined, right, where it's... You know, there's two places of, of desperation. There's the at the bottom and at the top. And mm-hmm. maybe they're at the top. Maybe they're feeling like, ah, I've been doing this. Everything's easy. I'm, I'm bored. I'm, I'm feeling it, but I don't know what to do. What advice would you give them in that first step? Yeah, it starts with, um, it, with the, and, and we all give this advice, 
but putting God first in everything that we mm. do. Mm. You know, a lot of times when you become a leader, especially a Christian leader, you can become a professional mm. Christian leader. Yeah. And that's deadly to our soul. Mm. And it begins with maintaining a sense of awe in the presence of God. Awe that God would use me. And, we, and, and when mm. we, rather than, and that's about gratitude, really. Mm. And when gratitude leaves, entitlement comes in. Mm. And, and that doesn't live well. And when I have a sense of that in my spirit, I really need to examine and go back to the roots of, I have a father who desperately loves me. And God, keep me in awe of that. And uh, that's, boy, that's a beginning for me is just go back to the, what, what, what was it that I, that I felt? What did I experience? Why am I doing what I'm doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Um, I know something that's you're you're pretty passionate about, and and really it's a common challenge right now in ministry, across the board, and that's uh, burnout. Yeah. And and trying to avoid burnout, uh, you actually just uh, um, co-wrote a book, The Endurance Factor. Yeah. That discusses kind of the topic and and provides a lot of insight and wisdom for those who are looking for you know, some practical advice to help them finish the race, you know, strong. Yeah. What encouragement uh, would you give to to leaders, to families um, who have families, responsibilities? And I mean, they're just overwhelmed and struggling to do it all. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chip Judd, who's my counselor, um, he and I wrote a book together, uh, The mm-hmm. Endurance Factor, How Ministry Leaders Can Avoid Burnout, Live Well and Finish Strong. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that that, you know, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. Yeah. And uh, that's living well and finishing strong. And uh, I think I think one of the things is just to be aware of the whole burnout thing. Um, burnout uh, tends to be, you know, there's a lot of definitions, but at its core, it's uh, uh, just a bone weariness. Mm-hmm. It is uh, cynicism. Yeah. When you when you feel yourself being cynical on a lot of things, uh, it's feeling like what I do doesn't really matter, make a difference. You can hear all of that in the prophet Elijah. We won't go through all of that, but that's the classical case of it. And uh, I, 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 you know, what what kinds of things can you do when you uh, when you feel that way? I think you need to have. Rhythms of rest in your life. That's one of the things, you know, where you have a daily rest with God. Um, There's a lot to that, but that's, boy, that's the life for me. Um, There's a weekly rest. Are you taking a day off? You'd be surprised. We started a retreat center, and we've had 1,500 pastors and leaders that have come through in the last two and a half years. And um, uh, more than half don't take a day off. That's a recipe for burnout. Right, yeah. right. I mean, and it's hard, especially startups. Yeah. You have startup business people, young guys, girls coming out of college, and what do you do? And startups are hard, and there are seasons like that, but God had the biggest startup in the world. Yeah. Did it in six days. Yeah. Why? Because it wanted to be long haul. It's not a sprint. We used mm. to say, you know, it's a marathon, not a right. sprint. Now I say it's a marathon relay. Yeah. You mm. want to hand, hand it off. You don't want to drop That's the baton. Good. You want to hand it off to somebody. And so there's a weekly rest. There's a quarterly rest. If you're married, you need a 
weekend away with your spouse. You got to get it on your calendar. There's a yearly rest, and I a lot about that. There's a sabbatical rest, and those are all important. But I also think that um, uh, we've got to have around us a band of brothers or sisters that uh, I, I like to say you need to sit at at least one table regularly mm-hmm. with a group of people who love you but are not impressed with you. Mm-hmm. I like that. And um, that can give you accurate feedback, that can you know, care about you. And you can't trust everybody to do that, no. but you need it. And there are a lot of mm-hmm. things, and we talk about it in the book, but that's just a couple of things. That's good. Yeah. It's so good. And you, you know, you, you've talked a lot about, and you write a lot about, you, you married your childhood sweetheart. I did. Yeah. Now you've got great family, four kids, 14 grandkids. Tell us about how your marriage has played a role. How did that strength, tell us how it's interacted as you've learned about how to deal with this challenge in ministry. Yeah, I think I just lucked out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd like to say I was looking for just the right, and I wasn't. Oh, man. Somebody said that when you fall in love, about 70% of your IQ just shuts down, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's been the grace of God. It's so funny. Debbie and I, in every personality test, and I love all the personality tests. I I just love them all. And in every one of them, we are exact opposites. Uh. I mean, like, take a disc test, for instance. Uh, I'm a high D, high I, absolutely no S or C. I've never finished anything in my life, okay? <laughs> I love um, uh, the the working genius, Pat, Patrick Lizziona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that book, and it set me free because he, he said that that tenacious, that finishing thing, he said, you just weren't created to finish things, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not. you got to get people around you that do. Right. But so I'm a high D, high I, nothing else. She has no D, no I, all S mm-hmm. and C. Um, that early on in every test, I could go through every test. And it's the exact same way. And uh, early on, uh, I tried to fix her mm-hmm. because she wa- wasn't <laughs> right. You know, she was she was wrong. She was not the right way. And so that made for intense fellowship. You know, and that was hard. <laughs> kind of got through that and figured out that wow, the two of us together are right. that's I incredible. Yeah. In fact, I would say Seacoast would not exist as it is yeah. without that. And she's not an upfront person by any means, but um, uh, so so recognizing that, and then we had a real rough patch. I mean, we've been married forty-seven years. The first year or two were not real good. Uh, there were several really good years, and then there were about three in the middle that were just not good at all. And and here is here's where it was. I, I remember nineteen ninety nine. Easter services are over. We'd had six or seven. I don't know. I pulled into the driveway of our house and I looked over at her and I said, do you realize that we had over 2000 people in church this week for the very first time? And she looks at me and she says, that's your dream. It's certainly not mine. Mm, And I thought, Houston, we have a problem. problem. And I seriously, I had no idea. I had no idea. And it took two years, two, three years to dig out of that, to to realize that I had a girlfriend and it was the church. Oh my gosh. And she was not cherished. Mm. I didn't even know what it meant for her to, it took me so long to figure out how how does that work? What does Mm. that mean? And words are just words, you know? And uh, so 
it was a brutal, but it was a wonderful time of, of putting things in perspective that the church can never take precedent. The job mm. can never take precedent because you know what? I'm not the pastor of that church anymore. I'm the founding pastor, but I'm still her husband Yeah, wow. and I will be forever mm. and, uh, God willing. And, uh, so that was, I don't even know what the question was, but, um, that's, that's been a part of the process. Yeah. So good. Well, we're going to close our conversation. We do this with everyone, a quick fire round. We ask three quick questions with three quick answers. What comes to the top of your head? And, uh, we have uh, three, so we'll start with you, Michael. Fire one away. Got it. So what's the first piece of advice you give to aspiring pastors? Don't sweat the small stuff, and everything is small stuff. Your message isn't as important as you think it is. Mm. And what would you say to someone, I'm trying to discover my calling. What do they need to do? Yeah, your calling, I think, is as simple as... Um, uh, um, being an accurate picture of who Jesus is mm. and bringing the, the kingdom rule of God into every situation you're in. And you can do that in any zip code. Wow. That's so good. So how, last question, how do you not sweat the small stuff without going crazy? Like, I mean, you could get so crazy looking at all the different details, trying not to sweat all the small stuff. How do you do that without going crazy? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Still love it. I love it. You still go crazy. You just go crazy. That's the, that's the solution that's right so there. so good, man. This has been a great conversation. Always love to uh, to hear you and sit down and meet your wisdom. Just uh, It's just incredible. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank this, you. This conversation. And for those of you who are watching, you go, is he wearing a tie? That's not really normal, no, is it? Because yeah. uh, we're, we're taping this on a commencement night where Greg is our commencement speaker, and uh, he's about ready to go out and, and share all of his incredible wisdom with our amazing students. So uh, just wanted to let you know. He didn't dress up for this podcast. It was for something else. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, we're grateful for everyone uh, joining in on us, and, uh, and stay tuned to what's next for Framework Leadership Podcast. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today on Framework Leadership. If you're watching on YouTube right now, now would be a great time to hit that like button, hit that subscribe button so you can get more leadership content right into your YouTube feed. You can also check us out on Instagram at Kent underscore Ingle at Dr. Michael Steiner or on Twitter and YouTube at Kent Ingle. And hey, if you love great email newsletters, and I know that I do, you want to check out the Framework Leadership Newsletter. Every single Friday drops in great tips to be a better leader, resources, thoughts right into your inbox. Check it out. You can sign up at kentingle.com. Make sure you hop onto there. Thank you so much for listening to Framework Leadership. Take care, everybody.